0: In 2011, Tunisia captured the imagination of the Middle East and the world, sparking revolutions across the region after the country forged their own. And today, this North African country tied to decades of centralized French 17th century legislative history is now working its way through a new democracy. Many Tunisians who had left their country have returned and alongside Tunisians who stayed home are building their
1: Tunisia. We heard from many that entrepreneurship is an embodiment of things they fought for during their revolution. And today, six years on, the Tunisian startup scene symbolizes a thriving movement. But starting a business in Tunisia comes with its own host of troubles.
2: I mean, honestly, sometimes the obstacles seem so large that you know I wonder why entrepreneurs would even go through this, and why don't they just you know take a normal job?
3: As Tunisian, we cannot, for example, buy things on. We don't have international credit cards, which you don't call it international. You call it just credit card. We call it international because our credit cards are filled with Tunisian dinars. So a Tunisian dinar is not recognized on eBay, on Amazon, on Google, on whatever, you know.
4: I always have this image of a bird that's trying to fly, but that his feet is connected to a big rock, okay? Someone needs to cut the rock so the bird can fly.
5: Tunisia is still a mess in the right direction. It's still like a baby trying to walk and keeps on falling and standing and falling,
0: but I honestly think we're on the right track. Actually, and I have to say, given all the challenges, it really surprised us how many startups there are in Tunisia. And I wanted to know why. So
1: we thought to ourselves, Tunisia is going through a pretty tough time right now. There's hardly any foreign tourism with the perceived militant threats across the country. The value of the currency is consistently falling and there's a high unemployment rate So how is there a burgeoning startup scene amongst all of this, and what is it like starting a business in the new Tunisia? In a continuation of our startup series across the Middle East and North Africa region, today we bring you Tunis. I'm Hiba Fisher. I'm Rezana
0: Zayani, and this is Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. (laughs)
6: is predictable. seen it happen. And
0: one story
1: that always kind of captures my imagination. In the streets yeah. lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures.
0: Okay, so our story starts on my second day in Tunis, where I had to see one of the more established startups in town, Digital Mania. In
3: 2010, I decided to create my video game studio. So I prepared a folder, like a real business plan, all the stuff. So I went to see it to the bank, and I've seen this lady just in front of me on the desk. And I said, hello, I'm here to to give you this folder because I want want to go. And she said, yeah, okay, cool. Um, What is it about my son? Very... Very childish things, you know. What's about my son? I said, video games. I want to do a video game studio. She said, like PlayStation? I was so happy she understood. Yeah, like PlayStation, you know, people play a lot. She said, yes, people play a lot. They already play too much. Take this and go away.
0: This is Walid Medeni.
3: My name is Walid Sultan Medeni. I'm the founder and CEO of Digital Mania, which is a video game studio based here in Tunis.
0: He's telling me the story of how he went to try to get a business loan from a Tunisian bank back in 2010. And just to understand the context of how curiously strange it was for a young Tunisian to ask for a loan for a video game company, prior to the revolution, the startup scene did exist, but it was tied to more traditional industries like tourism or agriculture. He did, by the way, eventually get a bank loan on his second attempt. And with two million users under the company's belt, he's now an example Tunisians point to as a startup success story.
3: It took me two years to find the team, to learn how to do games. And uh, we were living for two years with a budget of five dinners per day, per person, which is today $2 per day. Just sandwich, you know, and uh, and just do it. And it, it was really cool, really hard, but really cool when I think about it now. We were so poor, <laughs> uh, but cre- we were the ones that are really creating a big hype because Tunisia, it's the best launch pad for startups because as we did, you can live for five dinners per day. You cannot be hungry because you still have friends, family. You know, we are some... Our society is still very, very close to each other. It's expensive today to launch a startup in Europe. So come guys, launch it here in Tunisia. It, you will last twice longer. And again, you can fail in a very safe zone. But after the takeoff, this is the real, real problem. You can be stuck there and forever. So Tunisia is very good to launch, but really for the, for the markets... It will not happen here.
1: Expanding a company outside of Tunisia is critical for several reasons. First, the Tunisian market is relatively small, and one of the smallest in North Africa, especially when compared to bigger countries like Egypt and Morocco. Walid believes that Digital Mania has been successful because they've created games for international brands like Coca-Cola and LG, and because they strategically market their consumer games, the kind of games you and I would play, to a global audience.
3: You need to be international, otherwise saying, okay, you know what, I'm addressing the Tunisian market, and when it's going to be good, I'm going to make it international. Ooh, no, it's not working like that. The power of, of the market, you know? If the people don't have money, people don't have money. You cannot change this, even if you have the best Think product ever, you know? No, no, I'm, I'm don't um, misunderstand me I'm not saying to people, leave. I'm saying to people, think abroad. So you need to, to jump. It's not to leave, to, to, to make it wider.
0: And who who's your biggest market geographically?
3: It came from Bolivia. People went crazy about our latest game there, uh, which is called Bagra, which means a cow. And the the whole game was like you you, you have to steal the cows of the other player, and the one who wins win a real cow. <laughs> we got it here in the office. We put it in the backyard, and with with the live streaming and making pictures and selfies with the cow. And the uh, first one was called Tamela. The second one is Brigitte.
0: Wait, but wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> so you had a real cow here? I will show you. Yeah. Yeah, we
3: have a backyard. We put the cow here. We for three weeks.
0: For three weeks. And then the people in Bolivia that won, did they win a cow? Like a real cow? A real cow. Like delivered to them? No.
3: If you win it or you come to take it from us, even if you live in China or whatever, uh, that's the first choice. The second one is you can offer to an NGO that will give it uh, to, uh, to a poor family. So this went so viral and YouTubers started to do videos about the game and saying, yeah, loco, loco and stuff. <laughs> and we've seen like our, our base of users coming. I think there is more than 50,000 people there. But genuinely, I mean, we never targeted that country. We never put it, not even an ad there. They have just seen some... Some news coming around and, uh, and, and I'm really I'm, I'm happy when things start to, to, you know, pops like that.
0: Creative cow games aside, throughout my conversations in Tunis, the biggest choke point for new tech startups is currency. The Tunisian dinar, much like the Indian rupee and the Cuban peso, is a closed currency. That means, barring some exceptions, the Tunisian dinar can only be exchanged and used in the country itself. And taking it out of the country is illegal. So if you run a Tunisian company, monetizing your product online is almost impossible. The little things that most companies take for granted, like purchasing software, paying freelancers abroad, publishing and selling apps on iTunes and Google Play, it's just not possible without really complicated workarounds.
3: It's a very protective strategy from the government because Tunisia, we don't have wealth. Our wealth is on our reserve of foreign currencies, like euro, U.S. dollar. As Tunisian, we are a closed market where you earn dinars, to spend dinars, and all is inside. In
1: 2015, Tunisia launched an international technology card, which allows company holders of the credit card to purchase products and spend only a maximum of 10,000 Tunisian dinars a year, which is equivalent to about 4,000 U.S. dollars. Those purchases need to be authorized by the central bank. And those authorizations are cumbersome, hard to apply for, and time-consuming. So even though it's a small step forward, it's still limiting. You are going to
3: find that really the takeoff, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to fight against things that you don't even think about if you are in another ecosystem.
0: Their games are actually found on global platforms like iTunes and Google Play. And this was made possible through a partnership with a company in France. And as Walid says, to succeed as a startup in Tunisia, you really need to hustle and you need to figure out your workarounds.
3: Nobody's asking any more help from the government, I mean, in this community. That's what we are trying to do here with Digital Mania. We cannot sell on, on, on Google Play. Okay, whatever. We try to push on the regular way. They cannot, they want, they don't want, or whatever is happening. Okay, we'll find another way to do it. We're not just going to just die waiting, you know?
2: Every year a different area hang so I was there for a week. Before
1: the revolution, Tunisia was a highly centralized government system, and most startups had to approach the state for funding and support. But now, six years on, Tunisia is becoming more decentralized, and in the past few years, many incubators, accelerators, funds, and co-working spaces are cropping up to support startups.
2: So my name is Yahya Houri, and I'm the managing director of flat Labs in Tunis. Uh, flat Labs is a startup accelerator and a VC fund.
1: A VC stands for venture capital, and it's a fund which invests in small and medium companies. Flat6 Labs is an accelerator and a VC with offices all over the Middle East supporting entrepreneurs, and they just started their first cycle in Tunis.
2: In Tunisia, it's a, it's a 20 million dinar uh, fund, which is between 8, eight to 10 million dollars. I mean, I'm originally Lebanese, uh, but I like most Lebanese, I had never really lived in Lebanon. Tunis itself... I had the option of a few countries, but Tunis itself was particularly appealing for multiple reasons. I was fully under the impression that MENA you know, was just one thing, that you know, Egypt and Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria were quite separate, both culturally, economically, from you know, the rest of Africa. However, it's not as clear-cut uh, for, for multiple reasons. I think, you know, so coming from the, the Gulf and the Levant, You know, you always feel like, okay, the center is there, and we we bring everyone together. When you come here, you feel like they feel like they've been a bit left out. I think Tunisians are very ambitious, and they dream really big. They have so much passion, they have so much energy, and they have such a grand vision of their country. But Tunisia, especially when you talk about the entrepreneurship space, is that compared to other countries, like like Jordan, for example, um, the entrepreneurship ecosystem is really being pushed from the bottom up may be related to revolution it may not i'm i'm not sure because there's a lot of history and a lot of baggage there but the the reality is that the government is trying to catch up to the advances of uh, startups and entrepreneurs in the country here you see you know youth actually carving out incubation space by themselves you know they're kind of trying to beg for a room in a university or in a college just so they can actually have their stuff there and have their projects based there Um, And then the university kind of catches up and says, oh, maybe we should have an incubator space here. Plastics Lab's offices, we're lucky to actually have them right in the heart of downtown Tunis. The way Tunis is uh, structured reminds me a bit of Detroit, where, you know, a few years ago, there was a bit of a, I'm not going to say brain drain, but a bit of kind of initiatives that stopped coming to the downtown area and started going to the suburbs.
0: And I noticed it, too. I personally ended up staying in downtown during my time in Tunis. And many of the people I spoke to during my time there were like, oh, you're in downtown? We haven't been there in months. What are you doing there?
2: A few years ago in Detroit, you know, they started having initiatives that brought young people, you know, back to the city. And so this is really what this office and the initiative uh, through which this is uh, part of is about.
0: The downtown area where Flat6 Labs moved into to nurture startups is full of locals. It's incredibly lively. It's also where you get cheaper goods, rent and food. And so gentrification, it's a real threat. Uh,
2: And uh, we are fully aware of the challenges that we'll be up against. Actually, our first day here, we had an old lady who was uh, walking down the street who saw us, you know, kind of all dressed up in suits um, and started shouting at us. You know, she's like, what are you guys doing here? Why are you invading our neighborhood? Very much a bit of a, like a gentrification, backlash type of thing. And that's what we want to be really careful about here. Because we understand it may bring, may bring about change. Uh, and we want to be very mindful of that.
0: Okay, so maybe not everyone is excited about entrepreneurship in the country. But some feel it's really the only solution moving forward. Tunisia has an unemployment rate of 35% but an educated youth, many of whom have higher education degrees. Spending capacity is also low because no one is hiring. Every morning by 9am, I'd see scores of men, young and old, hanging out at coffee shops downtown, biding their time for hours. I heard a lot about entrepreneurship as a means of keeping the dream of the revolution alive and the desire and the mindfulness to do that right by everyone in the country, not just the privileged. By midday, on my second day in Tunis, I had to where most entrepreneurs of any city gather, and that's a co-working space. This one is called Kujit. Kujit is the heart of the entrepreneurial community in Tunis. This is where Tunisia's youth-driven entrepreneurial movement found its home. The co-working space is in a huge villa in a great side of town. It's absolutely packed with 20-year-old somethings in every corner. Walking in, I find Reem Boendi, co-founder of Kajit, perched on the edge of a high table, cramming for just a tiny bit of desk space.
4: So I've been working for over a decade in the field of sustainable cities. I was actually based in Dubai, and then the revolution came. Uh, So I think everybody wanted to contribute to the rebuilding process. And to me, as I was observing what was going on and with all these young people actually asking for jobs, it was obvious it's very difficult for them to just sit there and a job will come. I thought probably they have to think about how they can create their own jobs. Like there was a whole movement around entrepreneurship and that one centerpiece of that was the co-working movement. built environment person. So having a space uh, as a resource to help people and enable them to achieve something, it was like the obvious thing to do. So we needed four walls where we get these people who are struggling to basically think about what they could do and help each other and uh, maybe also find the support from others to help them.
0: Fast forward four years later, Kajit has 166 members and 23 startups. And from everyone I speak with, this is where a lot of the entrepreneurial stories for the country today begin.
4: There's a really good atmosphere for our core community that work and live here almost. We see them growing, but we also see a lot of externals coming to our events. So that's the kind of the bigger circle where they come and find inspiration and the mindset changes also. They're not anymore waiting for a job. They're thinking, oh, I have this idea. Maybe I can develop my own project, you know? So that's really nice to see. And I think today you saw an illustration that is even more beautiful with these 8 to uh, 18-year-olds who are building apps and websites and crazy stuff, right, for their age.
0: Reem offers me a tour, which I gladly take. And she first walks me into a room filled with 80 kids, all between the ages of 7 to 15. They're all sitting in front of their computers, and they're all learning how to code throughout the summer. This is Go My Code, a coding boot camp headed up by a young 19-year-old entrepreneur. Hi, nice to meet you. How are
4: you? I'm nice ah, great. He, he's this the founder awesome. of Go uh, My Code. But, but, tell, tell, tell him. Yeah, tell uh, you want
2: we to we are coding uh, school with uh, the vision to create a good computer science education for uh, students. Uh, we teach students how to make and build games and websites and softwares.
0: How, how many people are here?
2: We have up to 80 students.
0: 80. In, in 80 here students. right now? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And we work
6: uh, on different uh, ages from 8 to 12 years old. We have program for kids.
4: Are you in university? Not yet. Okay.
6: Going to university.
4: You took a year off to build this. Yeah,
2: this is a year off to build this. So, yeah.
4: That's. As much we have hope and positivity, etc., that remains the thing that personally at least pains me, you know, to see our young people struggling for no valid reasons. The limitation that we have of the dinar, I mean, it's very restrictive, administrative burden by the dozens. Some of the ones who succeed, it's because they are one foot in Tunisia and one foot somewhere else.
0: Since the revolution of 2011 and the fall of the Ben Ali regime, people finally felt like they had a voice and that they could organize. And so what happened was over 2,000 civil society organizations and 200 political parties have been formed since then. And this is really unprecedented. Activists, academics, entrepreneurs, students, artists, just the general public, they now feel that they can advocate for the changes they wish to see in their communities. And these actors are advocating for improvements to their startup ecosystem as well.
4: The other side where you see a lot of activity and a lot of time spent by many members of the, of the ecosystem is trying to change policies. I mean, here it's a bit blocking, you know. It's not easy to get a startup to take off for many reasons, and so if those fall one by one then wow Tunisia will be the place to be I think so there are committees and groups here that have been working on something called the Startup Act
6: and the Startup Act is basically it says dear government leave the startup or let them do whatever they think they are best at don't stumble their progress and let them do whatever they think appropriate because we have 21st century kids ruled by 20th century people like me using 19th century laws and with the 15th century delivery mechanism through paper
0: This is Norman Fahri, the CEO of BEAT Labs and the former Minister of IT and Communication. He's a private sector guy that had been living most of his professional life out of the country. I'm sitting with him at BEAT Labs, a new incubation program and a workspace in downtown Tunis. This space is supported by BEAT Bank, the largest private sector bank in Tunisia. The workspace, which was originally actually meant to be the main retail space for the bank, is incredibly swanky and overlooks Avenue Habib Bourguiba, where the main protests during the revolution took place. Fahri, as a former minister, is the chief instigator of what is now called the Startup Act.
6: And I came back to Tunis in 2011, find myself in a revolutionary country, so I decided to give back. I come from poor family and, you know, I got scholarship from the government. My original thoughts to give back for one year. So uh, <laughs> now it has been six years since I have been doing that. I called Houdet Greb, who's uh, a Tunisian who came from France, to give back. She wanted to give back. I her, OK, come with me to give back for a year. She said, fine. She was uh, paid miserable money compared to what she was paid in France. Uh, and I look, you have only one mission. Go and discover this thing called the Startup community, work with them and produce within three months whatever you want me to do as a minister. And all what I promise you is that I will not debate it too much. I may challenge it one or two times, but I will sign it and if it is something above my uh, my delegated authority i will pass it on and fight for it with, with you
1: in total there are 70 players involved in the startup act half of which are entrepreneurs themselves and the other half come from financial institutions and other industries
6: and they worked over 3 months to produce what it called the startup act this is the law we need you to fight for uh, i think everybody's saying yeah absolutely we need it etc etc and we need to change etc and everybody's accepted the idea from day one until it comes down to the law to the article 22.5 or 23.6 and it says you in your ministry you need to change this and then people oh wait wait wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. We, no, no, we cannot change this because this, this, this and that. Um, And, you know, in Tunisia, there is a fantastic thing with people of my age group and older, that they want to change everything without changing anything. And what happened in Tunisia in 2011, which sparked, you know, the Arab revolutions and and, uh, all that type of things, Uh, uh, the... uh, uh, you see, this is a minister calling, and I'm not answering him because you are more important to me than, than the minister.
1: The Startup Act is still being drafted and finalized, and the Act proposes 22 measures to encourage and support the startup ecosystem in Tunisia. This includes things like simplifying the process of registering and shutting down a company, providing tax incentives, streamlining import processes, granting financial incentives when you leave your job to start your own business, and, of course making it easier for startups to use their Tunisian dinars abroad. Why does Tunisia need this?
7: I mean, most importantly for me, it's a hope battle. How much hope can you bring to the youth? So if you remember, the revolution brought a lot of hope. And we lost most of it.
1: This is Ali Manif. He's the country manager of Silitec in Tunis, runs his own businesses, and is the main lobbyist for the Startup Act.
7: We're still not at the final version yet because of all this back and forth with the government. A lot of measures towards investors to make life of investors easier. Also to make sure that startups can access some funds uh, in foreign currency so that they can manage their own funds uh, easily and independently without authorizations and licenses from the central bank. There is, for me, the best, one of the best measures that we have in the startup act. If you take France or England as an example, they have, when you are unemployed, you can receive sort of an allowance from the government, right? To help you get a job easily and, you know, in the job seeking phase. In France, they counted this allowance as the main source of funding startups, right? So those who leave their jobs get this allowance and use this allowance as a seed for their startups, and it created a whole movement.
1: So in 2001, French policymakers reformed their welfare law to allow founders who left previous employment to receive welfare payments for up to three years even after starting their businesses. The law had an almost immediate effect, and the business growth rate in France grew by 25%. Now
7: we don't have that in Tunisia. We're missing a lot of opportunity because of that. So one of the measures is to, you have one year salary, based on your last salary, so that you have one year, you can start your own business. It's not only for Tunisians. And that's why, how can we attract people from abroad to be here and start their own business? It's open for everyone. And one of the measures that we are working on is tendency or perception of failure in Tunisia. Like other Arab countries, when you fail in your own business, you fail in your life. And the lawmakers in the past translated that attitude in the laws. So it takes almost a year to shut down a business. Now, with the Startup Act, we're reducing that tremendously.
0: So like three months, six
1: months?
7: I don't know. It could be one day. Yes, if everyone agrees,
1: could be one day. So Haile Menif has been mapping the startup ecosystem in Tunisia. There's a digital draft of the map that we saw listing 300 plus startup companies, banks, donors, government agencies, investment funds, all players who are actively working in the startup space or helping to enable it. And through this mapping exercise, they've been collecting more data about their own ecosystem. While more traditional Tunisian businesses can raise the equivalent of 20, 30 million US dollars easily, it's a big success to raise 1 million US dollars as a tech startup in Tunisia today. And as far as the impact startups have on the Tunisian economy as a whole, it's still too early to tell, in numbers at least.
7: And I think the Startup Act can bring a lot of hope. We can transform that hope into actions, into success stories, into exits, into huge investments, into conquering new markets, into making Tunisian startups shining abroad. So how can we walk the talk at least once? What we saw is a lot of young people that were very hopeful in 2011, 2012 left the country because of that desperation that happened in 14, 15, 16, 17. You know, you go out with friends and you have 20 around you and today you have 10 around you because half of them left the country. I don't blame them, but I would would blame myself if I don't do enough in order to prevent me going there, prevent me leaving the country.
0: On the other side of Tunis, in the old medina, away from the tech startup hustle and bustle, sits Layla in a shaded corner of a fifteenth-century courtyard.
5: My name is uh, Layla Bengesem. I love people. Uh, I love uh, heritage, and anything that connects people to heritage has a lot of meaning to me. I love creating uh, impact and return on investment. Uh, I'm very passionate about creating uh, non-financial return on investment.
0: <laughs> Leila, a former engineer by profession, runs a Maison d'hôte, a seven-room guest house in the Medina of Tunis, called Dar Ben Gassim. The Medina, a historical quarter in downtown Tunis with a strong urban fabric, has pretty much been around since the 8th century. The neighbourhood itself is densely built. There are roughly 100,000 inhabitants and 700 monuments. And these monuments range from mosques, palaces, old madrasas, traditional soups, all with a history and an architecture that is rich and deeply rooted in the Islamic dynasties of the 12th and 16th centuries. When you're walking around in downtown Tunis, it's pretty easy to tell when the medina starts and ends. Shops spill over into those streets, and artisans work with their workshop doors open, bookbinding, sewing, constructing, baking, it's incredibly charming. There is never a quiet moment here, but I'm sitting with Leila in the shared courtyard of Darbin Gassim, and it provides a quiet haven from the beautiful consonants of the Medina's sounds.
5: So it's, it's, it's Phoenician, it's Roman, it's Arabs, it's Andalusi, it's Italian, it's Turkish, it's Tunisian. And that's what makes Tunisia today. Darmenghism is a social enterprise, and we try to um, create shared economy in the Medina as much as possible. Because um, we think nobody can succeed by itself. It's the whole ecosystem that is dependent on us, and we're dependent on them. Also, if people start investing in the Medina, Uh, As in many historical urban quarters, gentrification will happen. I think the only way to avoid gentrification is to make it as inclusive as possible of the community. So all my staff are people who live nearby. They feel that every guest we have is their own. Because they're in their
0: Medina. When Leila asked for a license to start a tourism business in the Medina, she was told that the Medina is a residential area, not a touristic one. And she's now operating on a temporary license.
5: Before the revolution, the Ministry of Tourism did not encourage such investments because they prefer that tourists don't mingle too much with us. God forbid they give us uh, democratic ideas. So... (laughs) But uh, anyway, they're still not used to, I think now after the revolution, they want to diversify the tourism sector,
0: but they're still not very, how do I say, maybe not ready. She found the 15th century old house on sale in 2006, when a family of master perfumers decided that they wanted to move away from the Medina.
5: And the first day I walked in it, it it was obvious it needs a lot of work. Every corner told the story of an artisan, the walls, the windows, the arches, they just told a beautiful story about the harmony between different cultures that came to Tunisia to make what Tunisia is today. And I I thought it it can honor the Tunisian heritage and the Tunisian artisan and all the things they can do. I bought the house from a family that lived here for 300 years. So already that felt made my shoulders very heavy because uh, it's the same family that lived here for 300 years since the 17th century and now they're selling the house to me. It's the responsibility to to own something from the 15th century and to have so many artisans and owners and stories and births and deaths and family quarrels and weddings and in this space.
0: Although Leila purchased the property in 2006, work didn't start on it till 2010, until she was able to secure enough funds to do so. And as you can imagine, renovating a 15th century building is difficult enough in most places. However, the process of restoration during the 2011 revolution presented a number of unique challenges. Of course, it was tremendous investment for me. I mean, to restore it, I've
5: spent everything I have and don't have. (laughs) and borrowed from everyone who can lend me. We started the restoration end of um, 2010, slowly, and then we had the revolution in 2011. And uh, 2011, 2012, I mean, we had uh, couvre-feu. What's couvre-feu in English. Like, you you can only be uh, outside between... Curfew, Curfew, thank you. We had a lot of curfew. And the workers live far away, so often they can't come because there's not enough time. Uh, Also, after the revolution, there was a lot of the um, construction supply companies closed down because of riots. So it was a nightmare to find uh, a bag of cement or some iron. I had a lot of people saying, you're crazy, you're investing in tourism in a country
0: in revolution, but... This is the only way to make it success, right? Layla's <laughs> been running darben Gassim for the past three and a half years. And these recent years actually have been the hardest for Tunisia's tourism industry. Tourism accounts for 8% of the country's GDP and is its main source of foreign income. But the number of tourists to Tunisia fell sharply from 6.9 million in 2010 to 4.2 million in 2015. And this was mostly because of two horrific terrorist attacks. But now, sitting in Darben Gassim with Leila on a hot summer afternoon, the guesthouse is actually at full occupancy. Guests ranged from a Swedish couple tagging along a vacation to work, a number of manuscript academics attending a conference, and members of a Tunisian-American wedding party. Darabin Gassim covers its salaries, its maintenance costs, and restoration, with extra profits from the guest house supporting the restoration of other spaces in the Medina. It's the, the most heroic thing to, to take such a challenge and,
5: and create income for people. It's, I mean, no matter how small or how big the companies are, I mean, I think the biggest success is the end of the month being able to pay the salaries. <laughs> No matter what they tell you about entrepreneurship, it's <laughs> paying the salaries and the bills of the social security and the taxes, it's, you know, <laughs> nothing heroic, you know, it's just paying the bills. <laughs> but it's, it's a job gives dignity, a job gives hope, a job makes you dream. Um, Latifa, the cleaning lady you'll see in the morning, or maybe you saw She's got three daughters in university from her salary. I'm ashamed to say what her salary is, but every milim, every dinar, she's trying to put her daughters through university. (laughs) It's great. And she's illiterate herself. It's amazing. I mean... It's just thinking about that and they come whenever her daughters want because she cannot give them advice she feels uh, she's illiterate compared to them but uh, whenever they have uh, um, her daughter just passed high school and she wasn't sure if she wants to do finance or architecture so she comes to me she said my daughter has doubts can she come talk to you yes of course (laughs) so the daughters came and we had a big debate whether she should study finance or architecture and um, oh sorry um, a disaster um. <laughs> but um, so the daughter I was telling her what are you passionate about she said architecture but I want to do finance why, 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 why I insisted that she should do architecture and then she left and then I said uh, to Latifa the housekeeper, I said I don't understand she, doesn't, she wants to do architecture but she wants she wants to register in finance and um, Latifa says to me because her friends told her that um, architecture requires a lot of instruments expensive things to buy and she knows that my salary can't do it <laughs> and 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 she was smiling with ear to ear she said i'm proud of her i, I hope you convince her to do what she wants and i'm sure money will come Isn't that something? Creating jobs now is the only solution. I mean, if we Tunisians don't invest, who's going to (laughs) invest? Nobody. (laughs) If we Tunisians are going to say, I'm not putting my money here, the revolution will never succeed.
0: Back on the other side of town, the sun is starting to set, the music's playing and the drinks are flowing. I'm at a party at Kojit where a young Tunisian startup, Expensia, is celebrating their graduation from the co-working space. They've just raised their first million euros and are opening their new offices close by. For the Tunisians that chose to stay, to return, and to invest in their country, celebrations like these are the reverberating sounds of the promises of their revolution.
7: Kali, kali, kali,
0: kali, kali.
1: This episode was produced by Razana Zayani and myself, Hibba Fisher. Yahya Abu Ghazala was our assistant producer and fact-checker, with editorial support by Alex Atak, Lily Crown, and Alex Chavez. Sound design by Mohammed Khayzat. As always, if you like what you heard here today, please take a quick second and rate us on iTunes. It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find out about us. Thank you for listening. Until next time.